This episode was recorded remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic, and thus there may be periodic sound quality issues. Thanks for your understanding. This is Wise Health for Women Warriors, the podcast that brings expert providers to anyone treating female military patients and families. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Erin Kaiser, the Program Director of the Sashek OBGYN Residency, and today I'm speaking about intimate partner violence with Commander Monica Lutendorf. Commander Monica Lutendorf is a board-certified OBGYN. She did her undergraduate at the Uniformed Services University and completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Naval Medical Center Portsmouth. She then completed a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington, and is currently stationed at Naval Medical Center San Diego, where she's a division director for maternal fetal medicine. She has research interests in intimate partner violence and is well published on this topic. She, in the last year, published a clinical expert series on this topic in our OBGYN Green Journal. And although she's currently in San Diego, she was recently selected as the next chair for the Department of Gynecologic Surgeons and Obstetrics at the Uniformed Services University. So first and foremost, congratulations on your promotion. Thank you. So thanks so much for being here with us. So I would like to just start with, you know, what is intimate partner violence? Because I think it encompasses more than I think just the standard term of domestic violence. Yes. So intimate partner violence is really defined as any physical, sexual, or emotional aggression towards um, an intimate partner. That could be somebody that is either married or formerly married or has a child in common. And it also includes things like stalking. I think it's also important to remember that although intimate partner violence affects both men and women, it is much more common in women and can have a very defined cycle of abuse that makes it especially hard for people to leave abusive relationships. And so how common is intimate partner violence? Is this something that most of us as providers will probably see at some point? Yes, I think most of you have already seen it or will see it in your careers. And we think that intimate partner violence, based on recent surveys, affects one in four women and one in 10 men. And that's, that's a lot. I mean, if you see 20 patients a day, you're saying, you know, 25% of them are going to be affected by this. Yes. And it's much more common than some of the things we routinely screen for, like diabetes and high blood pressure. And is there any evidence to suggest it's more common or less common in the military population? In the military, it's actually a pretty similar prevalence of intimate partner violence. So the most recent review and meta-analysis reported that the lifetime intimate partner violence rate for women in the military ranged between 25 and 85 percent. And there's a reported approximate 36 percent rate in the civilian community. And if you look at more recent intimate partner violence within the past year in the military, it ranges between 12 and 25 percent compared to about 7% in the civilian setting. So I think it's just a common problem for the military and for the civilians as well. So it's definitely more common than I think I would have stated. Um, and, and like you said, probably something we are seeing every day, you know, perhaps unbeknownst to us. So as providers, what should we be doing um, to screen for intimate partner violence? Well, it's important to to recognize that although there's risk factors for intimate partner violence, such as, you know, early relationships and low socioeconomic status, it can really happen to anyone. And so it could be a colleague, it could be a friend or a patient that seems like she's not at quote unquote risk, 
but I think the more broadly we screen, the more you're going to identify it. You can certainly see some warning signs potentially when patients present for visits, including multiple prior medical visits for injuries, a prior history may be documented of abuse or assault, where the patients can present with a little more of an insidious presentation with chronic pain or depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, or substance abuse. How do you recommend screening? Should it be something that is written down, like on in the intake form that we give to patients, or should we be asking patients? You know, what's kind of that first step to, I guess, start the screening process? It can really be sort of any any screening modality that works in your clinic. So I think it can just be as simple as asking patients about their relationships and how they're feeling. You can also set up a more formal screening program. There are different surveys that you can administer that range anywhere between like three and eight questions, and those can be administered via paper. I think the most important thing to remember with screening is that it can be a little bit dangerous for patients that are actually in abusive relationships. And so the setting in which you're screening is very important. So I definitely recommend that your screening is done in a private setting away from the other family members or guests that may have accompanied the patient to the appointment partly because it will help increase their chances of disclosing if they feel comfortable and they feel like there's not somebody watching them. And then also because there's a safety issue. So if they were to admit to abuse and their abusive partner were to find out, that could lead to an escalation in violence. So I think making sure your setting is appropriate is probably the most important. And is there any evidence that patients are more likely or less likely to disclose something if you if they're writing it or if you're asking them out loud? There's no definitive evidence that one modality is better than another. Patients may prefer a little bit to do a paper and pencil questionnaire, and so some of those screening tools can be helpful. But otherwise, I would say just asking your patients about abuse may be the most helpful thing that we can do as providers because even if they're not ready to leave an abusive relationship, and studies have shown it takes you know, seven to 12 times for a woman to leave an abusive relationship, you know, even if they're not quite ready to leave at this point in time, they know that you're supportive, you care about this, this is important to you, and that you're available to help them. So it certainly could be something where they're not comfortable disclosing now, and then they're going to come back later to you. Or maybe they're not in an abusive relationship now, but later on, they become in one then they're going to be able to come back and get the help. So I think as a provider, a lot of us are concerned about, you know, possibly offending a patient by asking them that. So I guess what is your like, you know, line that you say or that how you how do you open that topic up with patients? Yeah, that's a great question. Definitely people are always concerned this is a sensitive topic and we're fearful that we may offend someone. But actually the studies have shown that most women appreciate screening and are not offended by us asking. So I do find it's helpful to use a framing question, though, to normalize the line of questioning. So sometimes I'll start with something like, because violence is so common in our society, I've started to ask all my patients about abuse. You can also say something like, I don't know if this is a problem for you, but many of my patients are dealing with abusive relationships. Some are too afraid or uncomfortable to bring it up themselves, so I've started asking about it routinely. And finally, another way to bring it up would be from past experiences with other patients, I'm concerned that some of your medical problems may be the result of someone hurting you. Is that happening? And so these are just good ways. Those are great. They like normalize it. You know, it says like other people experience it. It's common. And then I really like that last one because I have had patients where 
you're like, this is clearly due to abuse, but the patient's, you know, has denied it. And so saying about, I'm concerned that some of your medical problems may be the result of someone hurting you. I mean, I think that's a great, great way to frame it to kind of broach that topic. Yeah, I agree. That's how I've actually identified a lot of patients in the past is bringing it up in that way. Okay. So we talked about how obviously there's some signs which are, you know, really obvious. Like one I recently had was like strangulation marks, but I guess what are some other signs we want to be looking for or maybe other consequences from intimate partner violence? Yeah, definitely. There can be a lot of different adverse health effects that can be affecting women in abusive relationships. That can include anything from, as you mentioned, actual physical Um, injuries like strangulation marks, or there can be more emotional injuries and chronic conditions like headaches or pelvic pain and sexual dysfunction. Sometimes women will present with either unintended pregnancy or poor follow-up with prenatal care. And then these women are also at increased risk for things like anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and most concerningly, homicide. So we also know that patients that, as you mentioned, have strangulation, if they report that or choking, sometimes they'll report it as choking, may include, you know, an increased risk for more severe abuse in the, in the future, which can be things like a increased, a six-fold increased risk of homicide. You're saying someone is going to come and kill her or she will kill, go and kill the perpetrator? Um, so if you are choked by your partner you have a six-fold increased risk of being killed by your partner in the future. So whenever I get a history that somebody was strangulated um, or choked, um, I definitely follow up with them, even if they deny it or had some other explanation for it. I'll just let them know that, you know, I'm concerned. And, you know, just as a provider, you should be aware that those women are really at increased risk for being killed by their partner. Okay. Wow. Yeah, sometimes they'll present and report that they blacked out or they'll have like a hoarse voice and difficulty swallowing. Um, The problem, too, is that strangulation episodes then lead to lower oxygen levels. And so these women are at at risk for exacerbation of things like traumatic brain injury because that gets worse when there's low oxygen levels at that time. So definitely something where if you're getting that history, be more concerned about the safety of your And then how often do you ask this? Do you ask this like, when your first time meeting a patient, um, do you ask it, you know, at their annual visit? I mean, how, how, how often are you doing the screening? Well, it's definitely recommended to do formal screening at certain visits. So we do recommend for any new patient appointments that you screen with some of those questions. It's also recommended for well women exams. And then during pregnancy, we recommend screening at the initial OB appointment once each trimester and then postpartum. And then I would also add probably any time that you're concerned there could be an abuse abusive relationship, I would definitely ask. And I think a lot of people probably don't think about this if you're not an OBGYN, but actually rates of domestic violence or intimate partner violence actually increase during pregnancy, which sounds in my mind like it should be counter like it should be the opposite, right? Like you're carrying your child, you should be protective of them. Yeah, we do think that there may be an increase in intimate partner violence during pregnancy, and so screening is very important. It's also a great time to screen because pregnancy is a time when women are concerned about the health of themselves and their families, and this might be a great time to help them break free from an abusive relationship as well. And then I know you gave us some great tools or some framing questions to use. Are there some formal tools our clinics should be utilizing to screen for this? Yeah, there's definitely some simple screening questions you can implement. Um, You can say something like, has anyone close to you ever threatened to hurt you? 
Um, you could also ask, has anyone ever hit, kicked, choked, or hurt you physically? Have you ever been forced to do something sexually that you didn't want to do? Or you can ask, are you ever afraid of your partner? Um, you can also ask some indirect questions like, how are things going at home? How do you feel about relationships in your life? And how does your partner treat you? Um, some of the formal tools you could consider employing include the abuse assessment screen, which is the only validated screening tool for pregnancy. And there's also a hurt, insult, threaten screen scale that includes four short questions. And that's a great one to use in the primary care setting if you're looking for a pen and paper screening question. And are those integrated into the electronic medical records anywhere or those you can just like Google and find the form? For most of them, I think you can just pull the forms offline, but you certainly could integrate it either into paper charting or an electronic medical record format as well. So I think these are all great tools to ask, but I know personally, um, oftentimes with the depression screen as well, you're like, okay, I've got this screen I'm going to ask. And then God forbid they say yes. You're like, crap, now what? You know, my appointment's just going to double in length. And what do I do now about it? So I guess once we, you know, if you do come back with that affirmative, like, yes, you know, what do we do then? That's a great question. Whenever patients respond yes to the screening, we want to acknowledge the trauma and provide them support in that moment. It's also important to refer the patients to support services. This has been shown to be helpful in improving outcomes in women experiencing intimate partner violence. And then I always think it's really important to remind patients that they are not responsible for the abuse they're experiencing. And when you say re refer or provide resources, you're saying like refer them to behavioral health or what do you mean refer for services or resources? Well, I would, I would become familiar with what resources are available in your local area in the military, we have the Family Advocacy Program, which is a great resource that can help you, you know, with reporting in the military and then also social support and other resources for the patients. And then you'll also find that there's a lot of community resources like shelters and battered women's services that can be accessed at a local level. And so do you have like, like right now you're in San Diego. So do you have like a place in your clinic where you have like a packet already ready for like resources? Yes, our social worker kind of maintains some of the local resources. And so whenever I have a patient that screens yes for abuse in California, um, I have my social worker start the process of giving out the resources and guiding the patient to safe places. And then I also, in California, am a mandated reporter. So the social worker helps me with submitting the formal report to the police department. Okay, well, that's the great next step. So the other question I feel like is you're, I'm always concerned, like, what am I legally required as a provider to report either to the police or to the military? I guess we'll take it one at a time. So I guess to the police, you know, as a medical provider, what are you obligated to report? Well, it depends on the state that you're practicing in. So from a military perspective, there is not any longer any mandatory reporting of intimate partner violence. Um, but from a state perspective, certain states will require reporting different types of injuries. For example, in Virginia, you have to report injuries that are caused by a firearm. Um, in California, any um, provider that's like either a physician or a nurse is mandated to report any abuse in um, adults um, that is due to intimate partner violence. And so we're required to file a report with the police department in the county where the abuse occurred. Oh, that's so interesting. So even if the patient denies, you know, comes up with the story, I fell or whatever, if you suspect it, you have to report it as a provider? 
yes, you're required to report any abuse that you can confirm. So um, if you, in good faith, think that someone's being abused and you have enough information, the laws do protect you for submitting a good faith report. But it is important in California when you're practicing in a state that has mandatory reporting, and I think New Hampshire and Colorado are also similar states that require reporting, you should definitely tell patients before you screen them that there's mandatory reporting for intimate partner violence so that they can choose if they are um, interested in disclosing. That's so interesting. Yeah, Texas has, you have to mandatory report for child or elder abuse, but not for intimate partner violence. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, and that's a great point. In in all 50 states, it is a requirement to report any um, suspected or confirmed child abuse. Yeah, so I guess it's important for... I, all of us in the military who are practicing in, you know, all over the world, it's important that I guess we know the local laws. Um, is there resources on base that would, that would know that information? Or is there an easy reference to find your state's um, reporting rules? The best reference for us practicing in the military is going to be to reach out to your family advocacy program. And um, they are the best, both, you know, advocates for the patients, and then they can also help guide you with any questions about state reporting laws. Um, we can also provide a link to some of the online sites that maintain required reporting um, site, re- required reporting states as well. Great. And then as a provider, I'm guessing if you have to mandatory report, they could probably pull your medical records. So is there any specific like rules with documentation that you would want to do or not want to do when you're suspecting intimate partner violence? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the other first thing that I do um, is to make sure that the patient and any other children or family members are safe. So I definitely assess for any risk for escalation of violence or weapons in the home and then try to help the patient develop a plan to stay safe and, um, you know, get out of their uh, relationship safely. And then I think as far as documentation and the medical record is concerned, it's really important to document your screening and then the patient's responses. Even if they deny abuse, um, you can still document if you still have concerns of abuse. And then you should also include forensic evidence. You may have some body maps or have drawn pictures of where injuries were. I would include patient statements as well, especially any direct quotations. And then you want to document the history and the timeline that the patient gives you, as well as your physical exam, any symptoms or imaging and lab results, any referrals that you've placed, and also law enforcement notification. Gotcha. So basically, you're taking almost like a statement from the patient. In some ways. I mean, I think you just want to be very thorough with your documentation because, as you pointed out earlier, it is definitely possible in the future that this could end up in some kind of um, a legal case. And so being very thorough and timely in your documentation is ever more important in these cases. And I remember when I had one recently, we put in there that the patient denied this. We still suspected it based on the findings and why, and that we recommended that we offered her you know, opportunities to report stuff. And so just that you like what you offered, I guess, is also important to put in there. Yeah. And then I would also just directly to address with the patient, just say, hey, you know, I I know you said this isn't a problem, but if something changes or you feel comfortable coming back later, you know, our door is always open or this is an important topic for us. We support women. And I just try to make them feel comfortable coming back because maybe they're not ready now. I mean, we know it takes the majority of intimate partner survivors. They leave an abusive partner between seven and 12 times before they leave for the last time. So I think we just have to understand that it's more of a process 
and we need to be supportive for our patients during the entire process. So I guess the other question for us is military. You know, what are we obligated to do, I guess, in either setting if our patient is active duty or if the patient is, you know, the dependent of an active duty, are we required to report to the command? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Previously, the military did actually require reporting of intimate partner violence, but currently the military has two types of reporting that options for patients. Um, They can be either filing a restricted report or an unrestricted report. So a restricted report is something that will reserve their privacy. There won't be any official notification of the command or the law enforcement officers, and the victims can still access medical treatment, victim advocates, any counseling or other support services. But the caveats are the patients really can only report to their healthcare provider, again, assuming there's no mandatory state reporting, Um, They can also report to a family advocacy program manager or a domestic abuse victim advocate or a clinical treatment um, provider. But if they reported to somebody else, for example, if they let someone at the command know, that could trigger command or law enforcement involvement. So you just have to be careful and counsel the patients about their reporting options and who they can and can't report to. For unrestricted reporting, this would launch an official investigation the patients can still continue to access medical treatment, victim advocacy, counseling, and support services, but they're also going to be able to get resources and support from their command as well. And these are officially reported to the command and law enforcement. And again, just important to reemphasize if there's any reports of child abuse, those are always unrestricted and will be investigated. If the person, if I guess if the victim is active duty, as the provider, as a military provider, I can provide health care, but if she chooses not to report it, then I'm not mandated by the military to tell her command or anything. Correct. She can do a restricted report with um, family advocacy, and I guess she probably wouldn't have to report to family advocacy, but they're very supportive, and so I can't imagine why a patient wouldn't want help from them if she's ready to disclose. Um, I will say in California, it's an interesting situation because We have mandatory state reporting, but we're not mandated to report for the military. So in those cases, if the patient still wanted to file a restricted report, you would still file the report with the, for example, San Diego Police Department. And then depending on how aggressively they follow up the report, um, the patient may still be able to proceed with restricted reporting if the command doesn't get notified. And she doesn't have to necessarily cooperate with the local law enforcement either. So if I report that my patient's being abused and the police come and she's like, I don't really want to get involved or I don't want you guys involved. Then they kind of have to leave and drop it. And then she can still do the restrictive reporting option. I think the other thing to remember too, is when you go with a restricted reporting option over time, you can always change to an unrestricted report later, but there's the possibility if there was a significant lag in time that there could be loss of evidence or important information for official proceedings. So, and you also can't go from an unrestricted report back to a restricted report. So really, I would say when the patients are disclosing the abuse, deciding what type of report they're going to file in the military is pretty important. And is that true for the dependent of an active duty as well? So if it's the wife and the husband's active duty, and she tells me, you know, he's, he's abusing her, again, she decides whether to file a restricted or unrestricted? Correct. Yeah, it encompasses active duty spouses as well. Okay, so as a provider, I can't go report to his command and say he's abusing his wife. 
Yeah, unless there's like an unrestricted report. I would say the only caveat to that would be is if you have, we're always mandated to report if there's a significant risk for homicide to another person. So if you knew she was going to go kill somebody, then, you know, all bets are off and you're kind of reporting. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Well, wow. No, this was, this is really helpful information. Cause like you said, I feel like all of us, I guess, probably know we should screen and ask. And then, you know, you're like, well, she didn't fill it out on the form. And so this is really important. I think that we should be doing this probably more routinely and we should just practice using these framing questions so that we just feel more comfortable saying it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, understand your sort of natural inclination to not want to go there and get involved in a situation that can be so emotionally charged But I will say that at the end of the day, I think it can be really rewarding when you think about the amount of fear and control these women are under. I mean, part of the reason they're not able to leave easily is because there's these cycles where there's kind of this tension building phase, things are kind of getting rocky, and then there's actually the explosion and the abuse. But then the, you know, abuser makes up with them. They buy them flowers. They're super sweet and kind. Oh, that'll never happen again. And then sure enough, the whole cycle starts all over again. And so when you understand that it's helpful and easier to be a little more empathic with our patients when we understand that it's this really controlling cycle and it's so hard for them to break free sometimes yeah and you know i feel like the military probably adds a whole a whole nother layer because you have families moved they don't have their normal support systems um they don't have their families and friends around especially if they've recently pcs somewhere so i think that adds a whole nother layer you know on one hand the military has lots of resources but on the other hand we're always you know, sent, deployed PCS to places where we don't have our natural support systems. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of a unique situation. We have a lot of stressors as active duty service people, but at the same time, we do have a lot of resources. We have steady pay. So I think it kind of balances out in the end, but I agree. I think there's definitely times when people are at risk for these things to happen. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this really important topic. Is there any, you know, last minute thing you want all of our military providers out there taking care of these women to know or something they need to be doing that you want to like shout from the rooftops? Um, I think the most important thing is to be comfortable asking about abuse. And I think that the more we ask about it and the more we identify people that need help, the better we can do at getting people into safe and healthy relationships. And that will be better for, you know, their overall health and well-being. Well, you heard it from the expert. Thank you so much, Commander Lutendorf, for joining us today. Wise Health for Women Warriors is produced by the Women and Infant Clinical Community in the Defense Health Agency. If you want to learn more about us and the great work WIC is doing, go to the WIC SharePoint. The link and email address will be in the show notes. 